Hello, welcome to the Rule of Law podcast, brought to you by Matrix Chambers in association with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Hermer, and I'm joined by my colleague, Helen Mountfield. The topic of today's podcast is abortion rights in the United States. And we're bringing this in light of what appears to be the imminent overturning by the United States Supreme Court of its own precedent in the landmark case of Rowan Wade. This is obviously, if it happens, a decision with profound consequences for millions of women across the continental United States. And it's also, from a rule of law perspective, a vitally important issue as to what it tells us about the role of courts in defining and determining fundamental rights, and more generally, about the legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court, who, as things stand, look certain to interfere to produce a result contrary to the views of the majority of the population. As many will know, Rowan Wade was the landmark decision in 1973 of the US Supreme Court to recognise a constitutional protection of a woman's right to choose. The decision of the majority was founded on the recognition of a right to privacy drawn from the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution. It's become a totemic issue in US politics, always a rallying cry for the religious right. Over the decades, the aim of persuading the Supreme Court to overturn Rowan Wade has become a central tenant in mainstream Republican politics. Indeed, in the run-up to the 2016 election, Donald Trump promised only to appoint judges prepared to overturn the decision. Perhaps the one promise he seems destined to have kept. The case of Dobbs against Jackson's Women Health Organization may prove to be the end of the right to abortion across all of the United States. It concerns a challenge to a law introduced in Mississippi which banned abortions after 15 weeks except for medical emergencies or fetal abnormalities. And early in May, a draft majority opinion penned by Justice Alito was linked to the media. Now, if published in this form, it will mark a brutal, indeed contemptuous, dispatch of Rowan Wade and will open the way for states to impose complete bans on a woman's right to choose. It would also represent the triumph of a campaign fought over decades to place Conservative judges on the Supreme Court willing to overturn long-established precedent. What does all this mean in real terms for women's access to healthcare in the United States? What does it mean for the legitimacy of the country's apex court? Can it issue decisions in these circumstances and still expect to be perceived as standing above partisan politics? And if it cannot, what does that mean for the future of the rule of law in the world's most powerful democracy? Here to discuss all these topics and more is Melissa Murray, the Frederick and Grace Stokes Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU. Melissa is one of the great thinkers on both the law of reproductive rights and also the workings and jurisprudence of the US Supreme Court. She regularly appears on both United States and international media, and you may well have seen her op-eds in the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Melissa also co-hosts perhaps the second best legal podcast in the world, analysing the work of the Supreme Court uh, under the title Scrutiny. And if that were not enough for one CV, Melissa, who is herself a former clerk of Justice Sotomayor, was widely tipped to be one of President Biden's preferred choices for the recent replacement on the US Supreme Court itself. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So the decision was announced in 1973, and it invalidated a Texas law that prohibited abortion, and um, it made it a criminal act, in fact, not for the woman, but for the physician who provided the abortion. And in invalidating the law, the decision, which was written by Harry Blackman, who was a Republican appointee, he had been appointed by Richard Nixon, wrote for a seven to two court. So a very clear majority in favor of this decision. And the majority anchored the right to terminate a pregnancy in the right to privacy, which had previously been announced in a 1965 case called Griswold versus Connecticut. That had been a case that challenged a Connecticut ban that dated from 1879 that prohibited the use of contraception, even by married couples. The court invalidated that Connecticut law and in doing so said that there was a right to privacy that emanated from the penumbras of other constitutional guarantees, including the First Amendment, the Third Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and so so on, um, that basically allowed individuals to make decisions on such an intimate level, like whether or not to procreate for themselves without intervention, undue intervention from the state. And so in 1973, when Roe versus Wade was announced, the court looked to various provisions of the Constitution, including the Ninth Amendment, which says very clearly that the fact that certain laws and rights are enumerated in the Constitution is not intended to disparage the existence of potential other rights that are not necessarily enumerated. Um, but looking at the Ninth Amendment, looking at the 14th Amendment, the court viewed the right to privacy, which was sort of an amalgam of all of these different text-based rights, to be the appropriate route for grounding this right to terminate a pregnancy. The idea, as Harry Blackman said quite efficiently, is that the right to privacy is capacious enough to include the right of a woman in consultation with her physician to choose an abortion. And so that overnight um, provided a constitutional right across the whole of the continental United States to uh, to a yes. right to abortion. And right. then what's gone? To be clear, it was not abortion on demand. Um, like Justice Blackman also made clear that the state had certain interests here. And unlike most constitutional rights, this was not unfettered. So there were opportunities here for the state to regulate abortion. It just could not do so, for example, in the first trimester where the um, the safety factor of abortions actually was higher than the safety factor for actually carrying a pregnancy to term and childbirth. So in the first trimester, the state could not prohibit a woman seeking an abortion. In the second trimester, there could be reasonable restrictions on abortion. So for example, they could require that abortion providers be licensed physicians, like reasonable restrictions of that nature. And then by the third trimester, um, when abortion perhaps became more risky for the woman, where the risk between childbirth and abortion was relatively at parity then the state's interests were truly perfected and the state could actually ban abortion unless it was necessary for the health of the mother or the state to prevent the health or the death of a mother. So there were restrictions um, that accrued in favor of the state. So this was not an unfettered right to abortion, even in 1970. So the court's now currently um, dealing with Dobbs, the Mississippi uh, case. And obviously we've had the kind of the, the spoiler um, from the draft in the terms of the kind of the draft majority judgment. Could you just describe what Dobbs is dealing with and on the basis of the draft, at least, what it appears to be saying about Roe and Wade? All right. So let me actually step back. Um, there's an intervening step that I should make clear for your listeners. Um, in 1992, and, and this is really when the sort of political 
infighting around abortion, the political backlash around abortion really reached a fever pitch. Um, it was not an immediately controversial decision, Roe versus Wade, when it was announced in 1973. It took some time for the backlash to get going. And the backlash largely came as a result of political realignment within the Republican Party. Um, you know, They sort of recognized that pushing for segregation and racial separation um, was no longer a winning platform, even in the South. And they were eager to peel off Midwestern Democrats and Roman Catholics in the Northeast part of the country. And so they hit upon a different issue. And abortion became that issue that could unite these Roman Catholics, these Midwesterners, and these Southern evangelicals um, under one umbrella, the Republican umbrella. So from the 1980s forward is really where you see the kind of pitched political fervor over abortion that we come to recognize as sort of de rigueur in the United States. By 1992, this has really reached a fever pitch, and a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey comes to the court, and it's a challenge to a very sweeping abortion act that Pennsylvania has passed. And the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, actually asked the court to overrule Roe versus Wade. And at this point in time, the Burger Court that had announced Roe versus Wade is no longer in session. Um, it is now very much the Rehnquist court. Uh, a number of the justices who had been in the majority in Roe versus Wade have been replaced by Republican appointees. And it seems like there is a quite solid uh, conservative majority to overrule Roe versus Wade. Um, but in fact, that's not what happens, even though that's what everyone is expecting. Three of those Republican appointees, David Souter, Anthony Kennedy, and Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who are conservative, but also moderates on certain institutional issues, come together to form with the remaining two liberals on the court, um, Harry Blackman and one other justice, a five justice majority that essentially salvages Roe. And so they affirm in that Casey decision what they call the essential holding of Roe versus Wade. And that essential holding is that there is a right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy without undue state intervention before viability. And viability is the point in pregnancy where the fetus can survive outside of the womb. And it's basically marked at around 23 or 24 weeks. And I say that because that's the core of Roe versus Wade. That's what remains after Casey, because Casey actually does hobble Roe in some really important ways. Um, it lowers the standard of review that courts use to analyze abortion restrictions. It gives the state much broader latitude to regulate abortion. Um, but it leaves this core aspect of Roe, that the state cannot ban a woman from seeking an abortion before viability. That brings us to 2022 and Dobbs. Dobbs concerns a Mississippi law, HB 1510, which prohibits abortion at 15 weeks. That is well before the point of viability. So on its face, this is a law that clearly contravenes not only Roe versus Wade, but Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that's the whole kit and caboodle. Like if we are following the extant jurisprudence, this law must fall because it clearly violates both of those pillars of the court's abortion jurisprudence. When Mississippi filed its petition for certiorari, having lost at both the district court level and at the Fifth Circuit, um, the two stages before the Supreme Court, it insisted in its petition for certiorari that its request of the court was relatively modest. It really just wanted the court, it said, to decide whether viability continued to be a salient marker in the court's abortion jurisprudence. So they framed this as sort of tinkering about the edges. And that made sense because at the time they were filing their petition for certiorari, 
This was a five to four court with a very slim conservative majority. And that slim conservative majority really depended on the chief justice, who often would vote with the liberals on certain cases where there were institutional concerns at stake. So just a, just a term earlier, the chief justice had joined the liberals in June Medical Services versus Russo, another abortion case, to uh, to strike down a, new, a Louisiana admitting privileges law. And he made clear he was no fan of abortion, but he was very much institutionally minded. And stare decisis, this principle that we follow settled decisions, demanded that he rule in favor of striking down this law. So again, when Mississippi was filing its petition for the court to hear this case, it framed this as just you know a very modest ask, it wasn't asking for anything major. This was not going to be a big case. Flash forward to September 2020. Um, this petition is pending on the court's docket. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. By the time Mississippi files its first brief in this case, the court has agreed to take it up. By the time Mississippi files its first brief, Ginsburg has been replaced by a Trump appointee, Amy Coney Barrett, a much more conservative, very different philosophy on abortion than Justice Ginsburg. And suddenly, Mississippi's posture on this case is radically different. They are no longer talking about tinkering at the margins, a very modest case. Now, Mississippi is essentially asking the court in no uncertain terms to uphold its law that patently violates these two constitutional precedents, and in so doing, to strike down both Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Nothing is different. Nothing has changed, except that the court has moved firmly to the right. It is now a conservative supermajority with six conservative Republican appointed justices. We'll kind of come to the politics of this all in a minute and what, what that means for the, the, the future of the court uh, and the rule of law. But just coming back to the, the likely decision um, in Dobbs, if this, if this does represent the, the true majority decision, what does that mean in real terms, in terms of access to um, abortion in America, because it wouldn't, it's not the flip side. It doesn't mean that there is then, there is then a federal ban on abortion. What does it actually mean? Right. So the leaked draft opinion, which leaked just a few weeks ago and, and literally set the United States on fire. I, I've never seen anything like this. It's a completely unprecedented event. Um, we've had opinions leak in insofar as they've been made available to the public before the courts announced them, but only by like a few hours or a few days. Um, we've never actually had an opinion leak while it was still in draft form when it wasn't final. So this is actually quite unprecedented and, and very unorthodox. Um, the draft opinion is written by Justice Samuel Alito, who's been a stalwart of the court's conservative wing. Um, he is incredibly skeptical of abortion rights, despite um, what he said in his confirmation hearings back in 2005. Um, he's clearly evinced some antipathy for abortion rights and other rights of intimate life, including same-sex marriage. Um, he wrote this draft opinion and essentially said that the Roe decision was egregiously wrong. And, and to make that point, he sort of underscored the fact that nowhere in the Constitution is there an enumerated right to privacy. That's true. Um, but there are also no provisions allowing for qualified immunity of police officers, for example, or executive privilege for the president. Yet those unenumerated principles are virtually sacrosanct among conservatives. So, so that was interesting. It's also worth noting that um, it isn't obvious to me that his view that there is no constitutional predicate for a right to abortion is actually sound. Um, you know, this right 
emanates from the right to privacy, which in turn is implied from the 14th Amendment's guarantee of due process. When the 14th Amendment was drafted following the American Civil War, which was a war fought over slavery, the 14th Amendment, indeed, the two other Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th and the 15th, were drafted for the purpose of not only repudiating and abolishing slavery, but also repudiating the vestiges of slavery and the conditions of enslavement that had plagued African-Americans in this country. Among them, the fact that there was no right of family integrity, the fact that slaves could not be married, the fact that enslaved people could expect for their children to be sold away from them, the fact that enslaved persons had no bodily autonomy and were subject to sexual coercion by their masters, like, for decades. So the idea that there's nothing in the 14th Amendment that addresses the question of reproductive rights, I think, is absolute hooey. The 14th Amendment is very much interested in remedying these aspects of intimate life that were denied those who were enslaved. So there is, I think, a constitutional predicate here for it that many conservatives do not recognize and, and do not acknowledge properly. Can I ask about that, Melissa? Because I'm interested in the way that historical examples, really from a very long time ago, kind of when we burnt witches, that sort of time, kind of come into this judgment um, as if that's precedent and therefore shows what could and couldn't be thought of now. Um, I mean, is that a kind of a way to go in this argument that we uncover what the historical roots of the right to privacy or the implied right to privacy are? Or should we be arguing for a, a, a different and wider approach or or a clear constitutional amendment? Or is that just not possible in the US today? Well, so, so let me just say both and. Um, so Helen, in referring to burning witches, is referring to Justice Alito's multiple references to the work of Lord Matthew Hale, who is an English jurist from, I believe, the 16th or 15th century, who, among other things, um, you know, espoused a marital rape exemption that um, shielded rape in marriage from criminal prosecution. He also was responsible for burning a number of women as witches. And um, so, you know, not it's the most... It's legal history, savory. Melissa. It, I mean, it is the Anglo-American tradition, um, and again, and it is lived on in the United States in, in a number of ways, but that is the history to which he's looking, right? So he's talking about um, Lord Hale's pronouncements on the question of whether there is legal protection for terminating a pregnancy, and he finds that there is not. But, but as you say, this is selective historicizing, right? So he's very much interested in Lord Hale, not at all interested in the drafters of the 14th Amendment and their interest in repudiating these various aspects of slavery. And, you know, he is allegedly a conservative. All we hear about um, from many conservatives as a principle of constitutional interpretation is this idea of originalism, that we are supposed to interpret the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution in line with what the ratifiers or the public at the time that those amendments and that document was ratified would have thought. And you know, here, my colleague Peggy Cooper Davis at NYU has, has made very clear and provided amazing historical research on, like, there was among the framers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment this understanding that what they were doing with the 14th Amendment and the other Reconstruction Amendments were literally repudiating the conditions of slavery, including these conditions of enslavement that went to the sort of rights of heart and home that slaves had no access to at all. And they were making that available. And that included 
the kind of bodily autonomy that undergirds this whole concept of reproductive rights. So, you know, do I think that's the only constitutional home upon which we can root reproductive rights? Certainly not. Uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg very famously argued that equality would have been a more natural home for reproductive rights and the right to abortion than privacy, in part because it really went to this notion that abortion restrictions were a species of pregnancy discrimination and pregnancy discrimination, discrimination excuse me, was a species of gender-based discrimination, sex-based discrimination. And, and I, I think that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, I filed an amicus brief with two other colleagues in the Dobbs case that talked about the equality underpinnings of the right to an abortion, um, which Justice Alito does not really engage. He says that there's just no equality argument to be made here, no appeal to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that could be made here. And again, I think it's entirely too dismissive. And you know, you don't have to agree with it, but it is a rational argument that should be taken seriously. Could there be a constitutional amendment? Um, there is some appetite right now in the United States around the Equal Rights Amendment that famously died in the United States in the 1980s, although recently, um, from 2016 and the Trump administration forward, a couple of states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. There remain, I think, very strong questions about whether past rescissions of the ratification by certain states means that the amendment would need to start over from scratch to be properly ratified and included in the Constitution. Can I ask you about the, the practical implications if this if, if this judgment comes out in the way that we think it's going to come out? Um, that then leads it, does it, to states to, um, to, to, to regulate and to prohibit um, abortion as they see fit. So it's no, it's no longer deemed to be sub subject to kind of constitutional protection. It's down, it's down to the states. What, what's that going to look like in real terms? Because there's, there's already announcements from some states that they're going to seek to introduce even more restrictive um, laws than the Mississippi one. What are we likely to see in terms of access to abortion? You know, it's worth emphasizing that we don't know if this is the final yeah. opinion, right? So the devil is in the details. Um, it's a pretty good hint. There could be a lot of back and forth. It is a very good hint. Um, you know, so, some have argued, though, that this opinion is so sweeping and so extreme that it might have turned off a justice like Brett Kavanaugh, for example. You know, one of the things I've noted about this draft opinion is that despite Justice Alito's efforts to sequester the question of abortion from questions of contraception and same-sex marriage, all of the arguments that he lodges against the abortion right could also be made against contraception and same-sex marriage and gay rights. Um, you know, he just says, you know, that's not on the table, and we're supposed to take him as a, at his word. You know, it is possible that for a justice like Brett Kavanaugh, for example, maybe that was a bridge too far, and Justice Alito saying we're not talking about same-sex marriage and contraception was no you know, solace that, that, that those things were not going to be on the table in the very near future. And maybe he was willing to join the chief justice, who was the only justice, I think, at oral argument in December, who seemed to be trying to broker a compromise yeah. that would uphold the Mississippi law while preserving Roe versus Wade. So it could be the case that this opinion was leaked to keep Brett Kavanaugh or some other defecting conservative justice on side. Um, you know, that's, you know, one of the theories. So, yeah, I think it really does depend on what's going on in the court right now. Um, you know, in between searching for the leaker, how are they actually negotiating the final draft? But let's assume it's as bad um, as let's assume it's as bad as, okay. as, as I mean, it can be any worse. It's yeah. hard to think it'd be any worse. So let's. let's no, I, I think you're right. It's it's definitely going to be bad. Um, Justice Alito and I think also Justice Kavanaugh, at oral argument, insisted. 
that this was merely a neutral settlement that would return the question of abortion to the yeah. states where it quote unquote belonged. And as you say, there are a number of states who already have trigger laws on the books that say quite clearly that if Roe versus Wade is overturned in full or even overturned in part, they will immediately criminalize abortion or otherwise make abortion unlawful. And so, you know, that's a broad swath of states in the middle of the country that are going to do that. Um, even though this opinion hasn't been issued and Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are technically still valid and viable precedents of the Supreme Court, we've already seen a number of states take really aggressive moves to restrict abortion. So in Texas right now, SB 8, which the Supreme Court allowed to go into effect in Texas, essentially deputizes private citizens to bring legal claims against abortion providers and anyone who assists a pregnant person in seeking an abortion. That is essentially ground abortion access to a halt in Texas, sending many of those seeking abortions to other states, including Oklahoma. Oklahoma last week responded in kind by essentially passing a law that will soon go into effect that outlaws abortion within its boundaries. Florida has taken steps. Idaho has taken steps. So you know, we have a whole series of quote unquote red states in the United States that are acting as though Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey are already dead letters. What about, so, what about bans on crossing, board, crossing state boundaries for the purposes of an abortion? I mean, I have seen given, given the kind of uh, citizen action um, that is possible in the US, you know, public interest action where you claim damage. I have seen the suggestion that might be kind of bounty hunters. It does bring up images of fleeing slaves actually going to get them. Oh, I, I think there are a lot of parallels to the fugitive slave laws that once dotted this country before the Civil War. Um, Missouri was one of the states that floated the prospect of uh, making it illegal for a person to leave the state to seek an abortion in a more hospitable state where that was permitted or and also making it unlawful for anyone to assist someone in doing that. Um, again, I think that there are a lot of constitutional questions, um, the right to travel, the dormant commerce clause, First Amendment protections for the kind of assistance that people can offer. Um, but you know, those claims have to be litigated the practical effect of even talking about laws like that is to make clear that this is a climate where any access to abortion, even if it is outside of your jurisdiction, will not be tolerated. And it creates the kind of confusion that leaves people with very little understanding of what their rights are, what they can do, and just sort of muddies the waters in a way that is probably a more effective deterrent to abortion access than any law actually could be. So these laws haven't gone into effect, but they've made clear that this is an absolutely inhospitable environment for those seeking abortion care. It's also worth noting that this idea of moving things to the state does not mean that those in hospitable jurisdictions are off the hook. And so, you know, there are lots of people in New York and California who may be thinking, this doesn't affect me. I live in a state where abortion access has been protected under our state constitution, or there are laws protecting it. And again, there are a lot of blue states that have made very clear their commitment to abortion rights and abortion access. But in those states, you are going to see reproductive refugees from inhospitable states coming into California, New York, and Illinois seeking abortion care. 
And that's going to make wait times longer. It's going to make it harder to get an abortion in those states. So you're just seeing a displacement effect. And that actually will affect the individuals who are residents and citizens of those blue states. So the idea that you're going to get off scot-free if you live in one of these hospitable blue states, I don't think is the case. More particularly, the conservative legal movement has already indicated that they are not happy to just leave this at the state level. Like the, the, the sort of neutral settlement that Justice Kavanaugh talked about at oral argument is not the end game. They're already talking about the prospect of a national law that would prohibit abortion if they regain control of the House of Representatives and the Senate um, in the upcoming midterm elections. That seems to be on the docket. Failing that, they seem to be interested as well in a personhood amendment to the U.S. Constitution, if that's possible, or to state constitutions that would make it uh, the fact would make the fetus a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment or any state analog to the 14th Amendment. And that is already happening in a number of these red states already. Melissa, can I sort of step back and um, from this kind of frightening scenario and just kind of put it in the kind of context as to where the Supreme Court is going and what that means for the United States and the role of courts and law in the United States. So there's one school of thought, which is this is nothing new, that um, the nature of uh, political appointments to the court, which is something we don't, we don't have, as you know, over here, but the nature of political appointments means it's always going to be a highly political court. You've got, you know, the, the court under FDR tried to block its new deal and he tried to pack it unsuccessfully. You've got uh, Bush and Gore famously uh, in 2000. It's always been political and this is nothing new. Is that right or is there something qualitatively different to what we're seeing at the moment? So I think it is nothing new that the Supreme Court has been peripheral to politics and maybe even has abutted politics over time, um, whether it was the Bort confirmation or Bush v. Gore or the court packing um, episode with FDR. But I don't think we felt this kind of pitched existential crisis with the court that, that we're seeing right now. And you know, part of that is the procedures for actually appointing justices to the court have changed within the Senate. So, you know, the president under the Constitution has the authority to nominate justices to the Supreme Court, but the justices can only be confirmed to the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. And historically, that has typically required a supermajority of the Senate. So you couldn't just nominate your person. You definitely would get votes from your side of the aisle if you were the president, but you also had to curry favor with the other side of the aisle. And I think that led to nominees who were probably a little more moderate than what we are seeing now, the fact that you had to actually get some votes from the other side. I also think there was a norm that, you know, the president got to nominate his choice and, you know, the Senate generally went along with it, um, e even if the person was not their particular favorite. So, you know, Justice Scalia, for example, was unanimously confirmed to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, who will take her seat at the end of this term, you know, was as qualified as Justice Scalia, one of the most qualified nominees in history. And she barely squeaked by with a bipartisan confirmation. I think only a handful of Republicans switched sides to vote for her. And that's becoming more of the norm, these sort of straight down the line, party line votes on Supreme Court nominees. And that hasn't been the case. Um, we also haven't had nominees who are 
so clearly ideological in their outlook. Um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett were cultivated in the petri dish of not the peach tree dish as marjorie taylor green might say but the petri dish of the conservative legal movement and they were vetted by president trump for exactly this purpose to overturn roe versus wade so you know that's something i don't think we saw so before. the days of um, justice Souter. i mean you you mentioned justice yeah. kennedy before who I mean, were republican appointees but ended up actually with lots of liberal judgments those days, those days yeah, are gone. Like, those days are gone. I mean, and Souter is sort of, you know, the precipitant to some of this. Like Republicans were chanting for decades, no more suitors. They didn't want anyone who they weren't sure of. You know, John Sununu assured George H.W. Bush that David Souter was going to be a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. And it turned out that he was more squishy than that. He actually became a liberal on the court. And Nobody wants that anymore. Nobody wants a Sandra Day O'Connor who is a pragmatist and sort of willing to bend conservative principles so, um, on certain. So respects. when we see the nominees come before the um, Senate Judiciary Committee, whether it's Brett Kavanaugh or, or any of the others. Uh, and I should yeah. be clear, Democrats are doing oh, this no, too. I, yeah. But I mean, when, when you see them come before the committee and proclaim that they're all enormous respect as a precedent, including, and although they won't engage in the detail of Rowan Wade, you know, they would would never deign to um, uh, interfere with precedent. I mean, uh, uh, do, the, do the American public buy that when, 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 when people are giving that testimony? Or do the American public care that the judges are becoming increasingly politicized or not? So, I mean, I... You know, the underlying question to your question is, what is the purpose of confirmation hearings? Like, is it for public education about a nominee or is it about... And is it helping? Is, it, is there any role, is there any sense? Because it's kind of been floated here. Every time the government gets really cross with the Supreme Court here, they kind of float the idea of reform, including some form of parliamentary oversight. And you've obviously just got endless experience in that in the US. And is there any sense in which it kind of helps in terms of the... Um, public understanding of the role that judges play, of the the, the, the the increase, the respect for the judiciary, or does it tend to do, does it tend to work the other way? Yeah, I don't know how much of the public is tuned into it. I think uh, the Jackson confirmation hearing, I think a lot of people tuned into that in part because of the historic nature yeah. of the nomination. And, and, you know, I think we saw from the polling after that, that there were a lot of Americans who were like, uh, these senators were off the rails. Like it actually diminished respect for the Senate and, and maybe also diminished some respect for the court. Although Justice Jackson got like rave reviews from pollers. Um, you know, I think the the Thomas confirmation hearings back in 1991 and the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings um, were something of a spectacle that captured the public imagination, but not about the law and not about the court per se, but about these sort of ancillary questions that were um, incredibly important to the court, but not necessarily about the court and its work specifically. So, you know, I, I think there is something theatrical about the confirmation process. I, I think those who benefit the most from the confirmation process are the senators themselves. You know, I testified against Brett Kavanaugh at his confirmation hearing solely about his record on reproductive rights. And, it, you know, I watched and even among some Democratic senators for whom I have tremendous respect, there was a lot of grandstanding and 
a lot of questioning that really wasn't about the nominee and his record, but really about sound bites because they were going to be running for president later in the year. And so I, I don't know how effective the confirmation process is at its mission of public education, if in fact that is its mission today. And, and so I, I think it's a really good question. What is the purpose of it? I don't know, but um, I don't know that it left the court in a really good place, uh, certainly after the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And, and I don't think the Jackson confirmation hearings helped either. And where does the Supreme Court go? It's now becoming increasingly partisan. It's showing a willingness to engage in um, rewriting precedent. It's um, diving right in on um, a deeply conservative agenda. Um, with a majority, a 6-3 majority, or 5-4 if you take Roberts um, out of the equation, but a clear conservative majority in a country where the majority of the population votes Democrat, even if it doesn't produce a Democratic president. Where does that, where does that go in terms of the legitimacy of the court, if that's the, if that's the continuing trend? And what, what does that what are the implications for kind of the rule of law, respect for courts, acceptance of court judgments? What does that, what does that all mean? What are, the, what, are the, what, are, what are your fears looking ahead? So l- let me just point say this. Um, I don't think you can think about the court in isolation of the other two branches, right? So one of the things that made the court being so out of step with both the administration and the public during the New Deal was the fact that you had a functioning Congress that was willing, perhaps, to step in and pack the court if they got too far out of step and and continued to stymie uh, FDR's New Deal. Now we have a Congress that is utterly sclerotic and gridlocked, and the court knows this. Like, there's not, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to be able to get together the votes to pack this court. Um, they're not going to be able to issue any laws to restrain this court, whether it's in terms of judicial ethics or in the jurisdiction of what the court hears. I mean, Clarence Thomas's wife has been clearly associated with an insurrection, a prospective coup on the U.S. government, and he continues to hear cases involving that episode. I mean, like, this is sort of a court that's like, like they know that they are unfettered at this point. Like, who's going to check them? Who's going to stop them? Not Congress. And the president, without Congress, is going to have a hard time doing that. So it is a court that I think understands its authority, that its authority is outsized, um, that it does what it wants. And, you know, the only thing I think that will check this court is its own sense of what this institution can survive. That was what I was going to ask you, um, because I watched some of the Kavanaugh and um, Barrett uh, confirmation hearings, and they sort of, you know, promised to lay down their soul for the for the limited role of the Supreme Court in the Constitution. How far, you know, they are lawyers. How far do you think they have a sense of professional pride and what the rest of the legal profession thinks of them, rather than just untrammeled power? I mean, I think this is an open question. It goes back to the question that Richard asked me that I did not, I was not responsive to. Um, You know, I don't know that they lied during their confirmation hearings when they said that they would respect precedent. They they do respect precedent. They just don't believe Roe is a precedent, right? They that that's it. Um, 
Justice Thomas has been very clear about this. The Supreme Court is not like an ordinary common law court. It's a court that's bound by both statute and this constitution, which means that if the court previously issues a, a judgment that is demonstrably erroneous, he argues that it must correct itself. There is an obligation to correct itself. So they understand themselves to be right. And you know, I genuinely believe that they think that they are following the law, that this isn't a valid precedent. It demands being overruled. And I think that there are enough people around them, enough lawyers, enough people in the conservative legal movement who agree that that is the case. And so I don't have a lot of faith that public perception is going to be what sways them, right? I mean, I, I do think there needs to be, there will have to be some broader intervention. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I wonder what's going to happen with regard to these January 6th cases that are coming down the pike and what that means for Justice Thomas. Like, is he going to hear those cases given everything that's come out about his wife's own role in fostering and communicating with people who are involved in this? And, you know, is that a pall on the court that even his colleagues, I, I think, must understand diminishes the legitimacy of the court itself? So, Melissa, this takes me to my kind of last question, really, which um, is premised upon this risky moment in which the Supreme Court, if it carries on along this route, is at risk of losing significant legitimacy in the eyes of at least a very significant proportion of the citizens of the United States. Um, and as you said, out, that's no accident. It's not an accident um, because many of them political, political appointments, but that's to some degree, that's the kind of the, that's the kind of the swan on top of the lake. There's been an awful lot of work over decades going on underneath with organizations such as the Federalist Society pushing um, judges, right-wing conservative judges uh, onto courts, um, very concerted effort. And it's taken us to this point. What should be the progressive response? And by progressive, I don't mean Democrat or Republican. I mean, those of us, irrespective of our political views, but just with a kind of a belief in the rule of law and human dignity. What's, what, should be, what should be the response? So it's a terrific question, and it kind of underscores the role of the court as a minoritarian institution by design, right? So, you know, the court's justices are unelected. Their only sort of attachment to the electoral process is that they're nominated by a president and then confirmed by the Senate. But then they have life tenure. They're not beholden to the public in any way. Um, although, they have to be careful not to get too far out ahead of public opinion, because unlike Congress, they don't have the power of the purse. Unlike the president, they don't have the power of the sword. All that keeps the public and, and keeps the court going and keeps us obeying the court is our sense that the court is doing the right thing. Like, even if we don't agree with it, they're doing the right thing. Um, one of the things I think the conservative legal movement seized on immediately that this sort of minoritarian cast of the court also made it an important foil for the gridlock of majoritarian politics. So think back to when the Affordable Care Act, when Donald Trump tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and he got this legislation through Congress, and then John McCain famously voted thumbs down on it to repeal the, um, the mandate. And they couldn't get it done in majoritarian politics. The next step was to file a lawsuit in a Texas district court with a Trump appointee um, where 
they then opened up the question of whether the repeal effectively scuttled the Affordable Care Act. And then, you know, they set in motion this whole process where the court was going to be the one to undo the ACA. So there's a way in which the court is kind of a foil for the failures of majoritarian politics, but also the embodiment of the failure of majoritarian politics and the rise of a kind of minoritarian rule that very much characterizes the conservative legal movement. To parry that, you know, I don't know what the progressive response is. Um, you know, one of the responses could be to take the courts as seriously as the conservatives have. And I think the Democrats are slowly cottoning to that. Um, you know, the Biden administration has actually done more than any other Democratic administration to actually get and fill vacancies on the court. So we have more Democratic appointed judges going senior, which means that their seats are open and can be filled by the president. And the administration is moving very quickly to fill them and to fill them with the kinds of lawyers that I think historically would not have been viewed as viable candidates for federal seats. So labor lawyers, um, lawyers who have been public interest lawyers, public defenders. So diversifying um, and not just the complexion of the judiciary, but actually the work experience of the judiciary, which I think is really important. So, so that's one thing. But that's obviously only the tip of the iceberg when you have the Supreme Court in this situation. And the Biden administration struck that commission to assess the Supreme Court, assess opportunities for reform, but weirdly made it a massive commission of, I think, 33 different commissioners. You weren't really going to get to consensus on that and told them that they didn't have to make any recommendations. They just had to assess. And I think that was kind of a missed opportunity to really take seriously this question of the court's legitimacy. Um, you know, they didn't have to recommend packing the court. They could have recommended limiting the court's jurisdiction on certain key issues. They could have recommended something like a judicial code of ethics that applied not only more robustly to lower federal court justice, but to the Supreme Court itself to address this whole question of what's going on with Ginny Thomas. It didn't do anything like that. I mean, it was a missed opportunity. It captured the public imagination for a split second. And then like a bubble, it was just gone. And I think that was a missed opportunity. And there has to be more opportunities like that to focus and center. The well, Melissa, thank you. I mean, from this side of the Atlantic, it looks as though there are only so many opportunities to miss left for the Supreme Court. And um, obviously, we, we hope for the sake of so many millions of people in the US that the leaked judgment turns out not to be the majority judgment. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.